Welcome to A Treasury of Good Things. My name is Cheer Helton, and before we begin our readings, I'll start us off with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you so much for the people who have gathered together to listen to this podcast. Father, I pray for each of them today as they go about um, what you've called them to do today uh, with the work, with their families, with their friends. Um, Father, I just pray so much that your blessing would be on everything that they do today that you would be in their minds and in their words, in their hearts, in their actions, in the thoughts that they have. Father, I pray that you would have them continually to pray to you as we've been commanded to do, to continually pray. Pray without ceasing, Father. I just pray that that would get to be the way our minds normally work, to always be in dialogue with you. Father, I pray that we would not put anything over our relationship with you, that nothing would have more importance to us than our relationship to you that politics wouldn't be more important to us, that um, societal pressures wouldn't be more important to us, that cultural moments wouldn't be more important to us. Father, I pray that the opinion of others wouldn't be more important to us than your opinion of us. Father, I just pray that we would rightly put you in the center of everything, and that when we prioritize something, you would be our highest priority. Our time that we spend with you in your word, in the giving of others, and the serving of others for your name, Father, I just pray that we would always prioritize you and that you would always get the first fruits of our labor. Father, I thank you so much for your love and for your care for us. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us to be the friend to you that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our liturgy today is a liturgy for students and scholars. And the reason that I chose this one today isn't because we're all still in school, although some of us might be, but because we are always students and scholars, especially in a time when there's so much information that is so readily available to us online, through podcasts, um, blogs. There's just so much information that we are all students and scholars all the time. And we are constantly learning and growing. Um, if we are not stagnant human beings, we are always students of something. And so I knew that this would be applicable to everybody. So a liturgy for students and scholars. May I learn to love learning, O Lord, for the world is yours and all things in it speak, each in their way of you, of your mind, your designs, your artistry, your power, your unfolding purpose. All knowledge is your knowledge, all wisdom, your wisdom. Therefore, as I apply myself to learning, may I be mindful that all created things are your creative expression that all stories are held within your greater story, and that all disciplines of order and design are chasing after your thoughts, so that greater mastery of these subjects will yield ever greater knowledge of the symmetry and wonder of the, your ways. Along this journey, O great architect of life and beauty, bless me with teachers who are passionate about the subjects they teach, and with mentors who will take joy in awakening in me a fierce love of those parts of your creation and your story that they have already learned to love well. As I apply myself even to those subjects that I might at first find tedious, reward my efforts with new insights, fresh inspiration, small epiphanies, and with the firm conviction that you are at work in my heart in all circumstances, not only broadening my knowledge, but also shaping my heart by patience, endurance, and discipline, 
that I might mature to more fitly and humbly serve the purposes of your greater kingdom. Give me a deepening knowledge of truth and a finer discernment of the ideas I encounter in my studies. Guard my mind always against error, and guard also my heart against the temptation to compare my own performance to the work of my peers, and so to fall into either of the twin traps of shame or pride. Grant instead that I might happily steward what scholarly gifts you have appropriated me, and that I might do so as means of preparing myself for service to you and to others, my identity drawn from your love and forgiveness, and not from my grades or accolades here. Open, O Lord, as you will, the paths of my life in the days yet to come. Use my studies to further shape my vision of what my place and call in this world might be. Begin to show me where my own deep gladness and the world's deep need might meet. And in that light, let me be mindful not only of my studies, but also mindful of the needs of my peers and even of my teachers. Let me respond with mercy to the failings of others. Let me be in this school, even in small ways, a bearer of love and light and reconciliation, which is to say, let me in humility be your child. God grant this child discernment and wisdom. Guard me from error. God grant this child knowledge and understanding. Lead me to truth. God bless the labors of this new season. Shape me for your service. Amen. I think the thing that stands out to me the most, especially if you are, like me, past school but still a student and a scholar, that my greatest prayer so often to the Lord is that He would help me to discern what is true, especially when you're sort of plodding along trying to find out things on your own without a guide or a mentor or a teacher, but you are discerning things in articles or blogs or podcasts, and you have to decide, Lord, is this true? Is this not? Should I believe this? Is this something that I should take? Is this something I should leave? And the Lord has promised to give us wisdom without reproach. And so as we approach anything we're studying, that should be our prayer. Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to know if what I am delving into is true, good, beautiful, worthy of my time. Does it have eternal significance? Should I bother with this? Is this something that you want me to continue to investigate? He'll be, he'll be clear about it. The Lord doesn't hide himself from us. The Lord will let you know if it's something that you should continue to study or if it's something that you should let go. And if you are in school, still pray that prayer because there's a lot of things being taught that aren't necessarily the truth. There's a lot of ideologies that are being set out as truth when there's really no proof, if at all, if those things are true and right. So always pray, Lord, keep me from error. And he will. He'll guide your step. He'll t- he will enlighten you and, and broaden your minds to things that you need to take in. And if you are in lockstep with him, he will show you the things that are not true, the things that you should sort of close the book on and move on. And he will make clear the things that you should continue to learn about. All right. On to Fox's Book of Martyrs. We have a little bit of a longer read today. This is the, let me see. Today we are reading about the fourth persecution under Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius. Now Marcus Aurelius is fairly well known. We all know Marcus Aurelius. If you remember that movie Gladiator from 2000, so what was that, like 21 years ago? Oh my gosh. Um, remember Marcus Aurelius was the emperor in that movie. So Marcus Aurelius is also well known because he was a philosopher and he wrote the meditations, which people still read today. 
but but life was not very good for the Christians under Marcus Aurelius. So, let us begin. The fourth persecution under Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius. Marcus Aurelius was a philosopher and wrote Meditations, a classic work of Stoicism, which is an indifference to pleasure or pain. He was also fierce and merciless towards Christians and responsible for the fourth general persecution against them. The cruelties against Christians in this persecution were so inhuman that many of those who watched them shuddered with horror and were astonished at the courage of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs had their feet crushed in presses and were then forced to walk over thorns, nails, sharp shells, and other pointed objects. Others were whipped until their sinews and veins were exposed. Then, after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were killed in terrible ways. Yet few turned from Christ or begged their torturers to lessen their pains. When Germanicus, a young man and true Christian, was delivered to the wild lions on account of his faith, he behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans were converted to the faith that inspired such bravery. Polycarp, who was a student of the Apostle John and the overseer of the church in Smyrna, heard that soldiers were looking for him, and he tried to escape but was discovered by a child. After feeding the guards who captured him, he asked for an hour in prayer, which they gave him. He prayed with such fervency that his guards said they were sorry that they were the ones who captured him. Nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. After his sentence was given, the governor said to him, Reproach Christ, and I'll release you. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? In the marketplace, he was tied to the stake rather than nailed, as was the usual custom, because he assured them that he would stand immovable in the flames and not fight them. As the dry sticks placed around him were lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with a sword. When he did, a great quantity of blood gushed out and put out the fire. Although his Christian friends asked to be given his body as it was so they could bury him, the enemies of the gospel insisted that it be burned in the fire, which was done. Felicitatis, a well-known lady of a wealthy Roman family, was a devout and pious Christian. She had seven sons who were also devout Christians. All were martyred. Januarius, the eldest, was scourged and pressed to death with weights. Felix and Philip, the two next, had their brains dashed out with a club. Silvanus the fourth was thrown from a precipice. The three younger sons, Alexander, Vitalis, and Marshall, were beheaded with a sword. Felicitatis was then beheaded with the same sword. Justin, the Greek theologian who founded a school of Christian philosophy at Rome and wrote Apology and Dialogue, was also martyred during this time of persecution. He was a native of Neapolis in Samaria and was a great lover of truth and a universal scholar. After his conversion to Christianity, when he was 30 years old, he wrote an elegant epistle to the Gentiles and employed his talents in convincing the Jews of the truth of the Christian faith. When the pagans began to treat the Christians with great severity, Justin wrote a defense in their favor that prompted the emperor to publish a decree in the favor of the Christians. Soon after, he entered into frequent debates with Crescens, a celebrated cynic philosopher. Justin's arguments overpowered Crescens and so disturbed him that he resolved to destroy Justin. The second defense that Justin wrote on behalf of the Christians gave Crescens the opportunity he needed, and he convinced the emperor that Justin was dangerous to him, whereupon he and six followers were arrested in order to sacrifice to pagan idols. When they refused, they were scourged and then beheaded. Soon after, the persecution ceased for a while, 
because of a miraculous deliverance of the emperor's army from certain defeat in a battle in the northern province through the prayers of a legion of his soldiers who were all Christians. But it began again in France, where the tortures almost exceed the powers of description. Sanctus, a deacon of Vienna, had red-hot plates of brass placed upon the tenderest parts of his body and left there until they burned through to his bones. Blandina, a Christian lady of a weak constitution who was not thought to be able to resist torture, but whose fortitude was so great that her tormentors became exhausted with their devilish work, was afterward taken into an amphitheater with three others, suspended on a piece of wood stuck in the ground and exposed as food for wild lions. While awaiting her suffering, she prayed earnestly for her companions and encouraged them, but none of the lions would touch her, so she was put back into prison. This happened twice. The last time she was brought out, she was accompanied by 15-year-old Ponticus. The steadfastness of their faith so enraged the multitude that neither her sex nor his youth were respected, and they were subjected to the severest punishments and tortures. Blandina was torn by the lions, scourged and put into a net and tossed about by a wild bull, and placed naked into a red-hot metal chair. When she could speak, she exhorted all near her to hold fast to their faith. Ponticus persevered unto death. When Blandina's torturers were unable to make her recant her faith, they killed her with a sword. Oh, that is heavy and dark and awful. I don't think that there's... I don't think we can take it in. I mean, I just don't feel that I can take it in. I read these things and... I just can hardly, I, I can hardly take in what I'm, what I'm reading. To know that that would be your reward for confessing Christ. To know that you would be hunted, captured, and tortured. And yet all these people willingly chose the Lord. My goodness, I pray for the faith of Americans that we can have that sort of faith. We've just had it so easy. I don't mean that every American has had like a perfectly easy life. I don't mean that. We've all had to th have hard and difficult things. But I'm talking about none of us have ever had to decide, will I follow the Lord or will I deny him so that I can keep my life? But I know full well that if that if that will ever be something that God asks you to do, you can be fully sure that you will have the grace required. But that is so, that is hard. Those are hard words to read. And to hard, those are hard stories to hear. But may they encourage our hearts because these were real people. This is not a fairy tale. This is not some supposition that maybe this happened. We know this, these to be true historical people. Actual people experienced this and went to the grave encouraging those around them who were suffering, who withstood the suffering, and went rejoicing to heaven. We can know full well that that happened and that if it was required of us, we could also stand firm for our Father and for our brother, Jesus Christ. Because the Lord would give us the mercy to do it, and the grace to do it, and the power to do it. And in some ways, I do pray that we would get to see our own brothers and sisters in Christ love the Lord like that. Not because I want us to suffer, but because 
I think it's so easy to belittle the worth of what we have in Christ when there's no threat against it. Sort of like you don't know what you have until you don't have it anymore. I know that's such a cliche, but I, I think that sometimes we don't really value what we have in Christ because we, we have good lives. Our lives are, 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 relatively speaking, quite easy, especially in the West, in America. What do we lack? What can't we have but for a little hard work, you know? And so I think that because our lives are so easy, that kind of makes Christianity, which is part of our lives, also seem easy. It's just this thing that we've acquired, um, just, uh, just a part of who of our identity, of our general identity. But I think sometimes we don't understand the weight and value of what we have because it's never been threatened. And we've never actually, with our own eyes, ears, and senses, been able to take in somebody who is, is being threatened their life is being threatened for the faith. We've never, ever in this country been able to witness somebody holding firm with all their might to the truth while their life is on the line. And I think that the witness of that would be awe-inspiring. And I'm not saying that I'm over here just chomping at the bit, hoping that persecution will come to us. I hope it does. And I wish there was other ways that we could come to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, and soul. But I think that the reality is that the church grows in persecution. It does. And we're reading all about the Roman Empire. And they were hunting Christians, killing Christians. And yet, they could not stamp the church out. And we see that in all these other nations across the globe where Christians are persecuted and yet... The underground church is thriving. Yet in the West, where we can have all the religious freedom we want, church attendance is down. People's affiliation to the church is waning. People's allegiance to the faith is disappearing because there's no threat to it. And we feel like we can pick it up whenever we want when we sort of finally feel like it. Maybe a little persecution would do us good. All right, on to our hymn. So the hymn I chose is This Is My Father's World. And I chose this for two reasons. One is to do with the liturgy that we read, which was all about being students and scholars in whatever arena we find ourselves in, in the actual classroom or outside of it. But everything we encounter cerebrally is something that was given to us by the Father. Um, and even if it's a something that, maybe it's an untruth that has been handed to us by our enemy, the Lord gives us the knowledge to discern what that is. So everything that is going on in our hearts and minds, the Lord can clean and filter and make right because this is His world. This is His dominion. And so I chose this, um, I chose this hymn because, you know, often this hymn, when I think this is my father's world, I always think about like the actual natural world that is sung about in this hymn. And this is, this is a hymn that many of us know, but what I, it's not just the natural world that's our father's world, it's all the thoughts that are in our head. That's also part of our father's world. Every bit of knowledge we can have, that's part of our father's world. And he can make it right. Whatever's in our hearts and minds and soul, the Lord's blessing and mercy can, can shape it into what it needs to be. 
even if it's been even if it's a truth that's been warped by the world the lord can reshape it and make it new so this is my father's world goes with that and then it also we'll see it echoed again in the psalm that we read right after this so the text was written by maltby davenport babcock Maltby Babcock loved to take long walks in the beautiful New York countryside between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, and would often tell his wife or co-workers, I'm going out to see my father's world. From those walks blossomed a 16 stanza poem, with each stanza beginning, This is my father's world. Babcock was a gifted young man. He was an expert swimmer, the captain of a baseball team, an excellent fisherman. A top student at Syracuse University, he directed the university orchestra and glee club, played several instruments, and composed music. He became a pastor serving near Niagara Falls in New York, in Maryland, the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York, and while there, his congregation gave him the gift of a trip to Israel. En route in Italy, Babcock became ill and died. After his death, his wife Catherine collected his poems and published them. Babcock never knew that his poem would become the beloved hymn it is today. The tune was written by Franklin L. Shepard. Shepard was valedictorian of his 1872 graduating class at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1915, he edited a Presbyterian songbook called Alleluia. For the hymnal, Shepard set to music the poem of his close friend, Reverend Babcock. Shepard believed the tune was inspired by an English melody his mother sang to him as a child. Terra Beta means blessed earth, which is the name of this tune. And this is the text. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hands the wonders wrought. This is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world, he shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world, oh let me ne'er forget, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world, the battle is not yet done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. So, the, the tune, or not the tune, the verse that I most, most, most love is the last one. And it's actually one that I think of often um, because it's something that I've sung to myself to comfort myself when it seems that the, that the wrong, that the, like the, the, that the devil's winning, that we can't seem to get ahead of all of his cunning and manipulation. I'll sing the last verse because it's my favorite one. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems of so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be 
And so from that, let us go into our psalm. And I chose Psalm 19. And this is also an adoration to God and the universe that he has created. You'll know this one. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God, my rock and my redeemer. Don't you just love that? Don't you just love that where it talks about the he has set the he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Don't you just love that idea of the sun running its course with joy? I just love the idea that all around me, everything is constantly proclaiming the glory of God. I mean, it just makes me want to join in, doesn't it? I mean, last night I went for a run and it's summertime and I could hear all the cicadas and everything and, and the evening birds were chirping and I'd been listening to some music and I just took my earbuds out and I just ran with the sounds of all of nature proclaiming the glory of God. And I had to stop because I had a tear. I mean, I was like tearing up because it was like I had chills and I was tearing up because I thought... I get to stand in this moment with all of nature proclaiming the glory of God, all of nature singing to God, and I get to sing to God with everything, every bit of my being. Even as I'm running, I am rejoicing in the Lord, and I'm rejoicing in the strength that he's given me. I am praising him with the movement of my body. I want to be like the sun running its course with joy. I'm going to pray for us real quick before you, uh, before we close up today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope, I hope that this was an encouragement to you. And I hope that there was something that was said today that lodges in your heart for the rest of the day that is God's message to you, that it's God's love letter to you. Something that was read about in the Psalms, in the liturgy, in the hymn, in the history, something that you can hold on to today as your something from God. Let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, oh, these readings were good today. I feel so ministered to through this. And Father, I thank you for this idea to do this podcast because it is as meaningful to me as anything I've ever done. 
uh, Father, if I am the only one who ever hears this because I'm the one that recorded it and I'm the one that edits it, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for this collection, Father, of good things. Thank you, Father, for this encouragement. Father, I thank you for a beautiful world that declares your glory all the time. And I pray for eyes that would help me to see it. And I pray for a heart that would want to join in and sing with the rest of the world to you, to your glory, Father. Lord, I pray that today I would run my race with joy, like the sun that races across the sky. Father, I pray that I would live out each moment as you would have me to live. Psalm 139 talks about how all the days of my life are written down when yet there were none of them. Father, there is a way in which you would have me live today. Father, I pray that I would live it to your standard. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps me to live to your standard. I thank you that I do not have to bring anything to the table except for an obedient heart. I thank you, Father, that you help me to fulfill the things you've asked of me. Father, help me to obey you in all that I do and help me to make you my highest priority today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.